And what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who make the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye did fa frame thy fearful symmetry? Um, if any of you knew anything about Plato, you'd, you'd recognize this tiger right away. Plato made it clear that the source of all things in creation, all particular things, were forms. That they were the archetypes, the, uh, the templates, the patterns of all things here. That's why there's a universal character to everything here in the world. Um, so the explanation for the fact that there's this universal, universality to things, that we're, we're all humans, right? But every one of us is different. So how do you account for the universality that we all share that nature? Plato's explanation was these forms. St. Augustine, who was a Platonist early, took that and adapted it to his Christian belief and said, the forms that Plato talked about are actually the ideas in God's mind. So those are the creative templates. The ideas in God's mind are the creative templates. They're the source for everything here in reality. Okay? Now, if that's true, and the... Is everybody following me? Is that clear? If that's true, and a tiger is terrifying. I mean, if we were in Africa and you turned the corner and you suddenly ran into a tiger, I'm sure all of you would want to run, except you'd probably be too paralyzed, or probably I would. Um, if that tiger is terrifying, imagine looking at the creative template in God's mind. And in this case, that tiger is associated with Satan, this dark figure. So the tiger that Blake's looking at here is an image of the creative archetypes in our souls that help explain the origins of all the creative work we do here on Earth. Okay? Is that clear? And let me read it again and keep that in mind, okay? Because lots of this, it reads so simply. I mean, a fourth grader could read this. There's no language problem. And when they read it, they're probably going to think this is a tiger. Um, that's not what Blake's got in his mind. Blake is looking at something that a third and fourth grader would have a hard time grasping. I think sometimes we do. The tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And notice how the beat, the onomatopoeia effect of that beat, imitates the anvil, the working at the anvil, God pounding this thing into being when we get there. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the feet? Who was the creator who could have made this thing? Extraordinary, whoever it was. And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp 
dare its deadly terrors grant? Who could have made this? An extraordinary, awful creature, awesome. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb, all right, Christ, did he who make the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Okay. Okay, let's turn to Milton. Before we start, there's a ton of food. Um, some really good food over there. There's coffee and there's wine. Yes. So please help yourselves. Okay, very briefly. Um, I want to do this really quickly because four and five um, only asked us to look in my mind at the questions that I've been asking more deeply, more seriously. So we talked last week about the importance of the epic tradition and how well Milton knew it. He he was familiar with every part of it. And, and Milton would have, by the way, Milton would have known the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek. He would have known the Aeneid in um, in um, Latin. Um, <coughs> He would have read them in their original language. So he would have known all the ancient epics um, deeply. They, they just form part of who he was. Remember we said that the epic tradition um, is that narrative tradition that has a prophetic quality to it that actually begins to make its appearance um, at a time when the Old Testament is being formed. And an amazing correspondence is going on between them. These amazing, amazing parallels. Um, he, he's aware of that epic tradition. Remember the, ep the word epic comes from the word epos, the Greek meaning word or song um, or, or reason, but always with a divine sense, a divine word, a divine reason. Because in the epic, the epic poet always calls on the help of the gods to reveal the ways in which the gods are involved in our lives. So the stories they tell always show a human action but an action that involves the gods, intimately. Now think about how important that is. We didn't talk about this, but just to mention, the novel, which comes into existence about the 16th century, the word novel means new. The novel continues the epic tradition, but it does so with a scientific view, a far more empirical world, so the gods are gone. If you look at the early novels from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, the gods don't make an appearance anymore, they're gone. The novel has to do with a man-centered world. The epic looks back to a God-centered world. And those of you who've been doing this now for a couple of years, you know that that changes with Melville and Faulkner. Those of you who've been here know that what's, what's so amazing about Melville and Faulkner is they actually present a human story, but it's clear that a divine order is at work in it. So Melville and, and they're both American, Melville and Faulkner are amazing in that sense because they're writing in the novel tradition, but they're actually adapt. They're bringing in a perspective that we lost when the epic um, went out of existence. Okay, you could argue that Moby Dick and Go Down Melville's Moby Dick and Faulkner's Go Down Moses are epic. Okay.
character. It's the way I tend to look at them. You know that from those of, for those of you who are with, with us. Um, so Milton is working out of that convention going back, but he turns it on his head because he takes um, a book from scripture and rewrites it. And, and that's what makes Milton so problematic because he's working out of an, an epic tradition that was not explicitly Christian until Dante, but Dante didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't work off of a, a book in scripture. Milton does. And it raises all sorts of problems because what he does is rewrite that book, Genesis. So he presents problems to us that are so peculiar to the modern world, and it's one of the reasons I did all the stuff on um, the Reformation, so that we're aware of what's going on, what's behind his writing. Um, and um, not only did he create a problem by taking a work in scripture, he turned the whole epic tradition on his head in a sense because he took for his hero, Satan, and we have to ask, what does that mean? What are the implications of it? Um, one of the things that we can come away with is what he's doing is saying all the epic heroes were flawed. We know from that, um, the catalog of the gods that every one of the fallen angels, the demons, are the sources of the gods that um, the people who surrounded the Israelites worshipped, Baal and others. So he's saying the source of all the evil, the, the false gods, and, and that sometimes even the Israelites worshipped were actually fallen demons. And that some of them are actually the prototypes of the Greek gods, Zeus, Hephaestus, and the others. So he takes that whole world and turns it on its head. Okay? We looked at books two and three. In books two, we looked at the Council of the Demons, and what we saw is that it was ridiculous that these these demons were giving arguments about what, what would be their course of action now that they had lost heaven. And when we look at them closely, we see none of them make sense. None of them make sense at all. The whole thing is a travesty. They all think they, they know and what we learn from looking at what they say closely, they don't even see what they don't know. And all of it anyway is a setup by Satan himself. Um, and remember, I, I talked about this last week, if you look at that scene and the way that it's set up with two extremes in a middle position, that's a parody, an inversion of what Aristotle does in the, in the ethics. Remember that virtue is a means between two extremes. So um, in that scene, he's showing us the metaphysics of evil, the ultimate source of all evil in the world. Um, it's, it's the reverse of any good. And it's insane in its nature. It presents itself as being rational when, as a matter of fact, there's nothing rational about it at all. If anybody, are, I'm sure you're all following the news lately, it's hard to look at the politi political battles that are going on right now without, certainly for me, shaking my head and saying, it's just insanity. I mean, it's just, when you hear the reasons that these people use, I mean, what can you say except they couldn't be less rational than they are? They're just insane, God. And, and it's, 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 it's a mob expression of it. I mean, it's not a few people, it's, it's our culture. Um, vast populations of our culture. In book three, we saw the opposite of what took place in book two. We see a council involving the father 
and the sun. And what we see there is the metaphysics of goodness. That God is all giving and the sun is going to do an amazing thing to show the bountifulness of God the Father. He's going to offer his life um, to answer man's sin. He's going to offer himself as an atonement um, so, so that man won't be eternally damned. So the, the two books um, stand side by side as mere reversals of each other, one of evil and one of good. One of the other um, interesting um, parallels that takes place in there, um, in, in book two, we watch this trumped up scene play out. All of it is, is um, directed to that point where Satan can stand up and say, I will go. He's going to be the epic hero. He's going to be the one to take on the risks. And the end of what he's going to do, remember, is the destruction of this new world, this new world that God's bringing into being. And if we look at that, it lines up with what the son does with the father, except it's the reverse. The, the son steps forward and says, I'll go. So in those two councils, we're seeing the metaphysics of good and evil. Okay. Um, that's where we were last time. Now, just two, two things I've been asking everybody to keep in mind. Um, Milton's, remember, this, I mean, this is, the, this is a very serious concern for me, I'm being really honest here, because I tend to teach this in an academic setting and <coughs> without giving it the catechetical importance I'm giving it right now. Um, are there things that we can learn about the Protestant faith um, from what Milton's doing. In, in our opening classes together, some of the questions that I put out is, what does it matter what faith we, I mean, what belief we have? What does, who cares what belief? The assumption for all of us, I think, when we look at that question is that we know a belief shapes our souls. It helps form the way we look and act. Our beliefs, in a sense, determine us, they fix us. Either there's an ultimate truth to these beliefs or we're all in illusions, okay? And one of the reasons for setting these two, I hope that's clear. Beliefs shape what we do. They, they give a certain character to the soul, Islamic, Jew, Jewish, um, Christian. And in the Protestant Catholic souls, you've got um, two very different ways of standing towards Christ radically different. Um, and one of the fundamental questions we've come together to answer here is what's the difference? So one of the things that I'm asking everybody to do is keep in mind, is there anything going on in what Milton's doing with this poem that reflects something Protestant? Some of that I think is really subtle. Some of it's really obvious. But is there something for us to learn um, and will it help us to see anything about our own faith? When we get to Dante, that's going to be more explicit, but right now we're putting those two things together. Okay. Um, and a couple of things, a couple of reminders right now. Remember that according to Milton's own beliefs, he believes that Scripture's an infallible authority, that there should be no established religion telling anybody what to believe. He thinks that's an infringement on people's rights and conscience. But nobody should dictate how to believe in Christ. 
And we've talked about that. If you've got contradictory views, what do you do? Because when you come out of the Reformation, you see that so many of the Reformation thinkers took positions that contradicted each other. What do you do with that? Truth doesn't contradict itself. If there's a truth, it's universal and unchanging. Um, he believed that scripture was the infallible source of authority for all of us, and um, that each one of us had to have a personal engagement with that. So what he's doing with Paradise Lost is going to Genesis and rewriting, he's, rewrite, he's rewriting Genesis, right? And he's taking Genesis and he's laying it out. None of this comes from the Bible. I mean, this is not, this is not what we get from Genesis. What do we do with this? What do you do with this? So four and five right now are absolutely crucial because our attention is shifted from Satan to an action that's rooted in the Bible, in Genesis. So the questions that I've been putting um, forward, in my mind, take on a greater significance right now. Okay. Um, so what does he do with that? And remember, in the beginning of the poem, he sets out to, to justify the ways of God to men. To justify the ways of God to men. St. Paul says God's ways, this is St. Paul, God, Christ says it too, says nobody knows the Father except me. Paul says God's ways are inscrutable. Nobody knows them. They're so deep. Milton's saying he's going to justify those. He's going to reveal, and you know in three and four and five, we actually see God speaking and revealing his motives, why he does what he does. So there are serious things to keep in mind here when we're reading particularly these books. And that's with Milton. The other question is, what do we do with Satan? Because the, the question that I've been putting to you is, how do we read Satan? Because in so many ways, um, Milton seems to be humanizing him. Can, can a fallen demon, this is fundamental to me, can a fallen demon be divided? Can he express regrets? Can he wonder? The position, you know my position on that. If, if he does, and a God condemns him, then I'd say that's a really cruel God. Because so long as there's something divided in his soul, so long as his soul can contemplate doing things a different way, he can be saved. So, <laughs> so we've got fundamental problems here. Okay? Fun Difficult questions to keep in mind as we move forward. Okay. It's Satan I wish to talk about. Sorry? It's Satan I wish to talk about in my one minute. Do you want to do it now? Yes. Sure, go ahead, Marcy. Yes. I'm Marcy's going to give us a one-minute explanation of four and five. Yeah, and when I get through, you don't have to read the rest. You can just read Satan is a person. Everybody will be eternally grateful to you if you can do that. <laughs> yes. Okay, this book is about love. And Satan's name was Lucifer. And he was high up in the order of the angels. And I'm taking this from pages 84 to 87. This explains that he wants power and love of everyone toward him. And he tries his best to do that. You know, he's thinking of ways. He wants to be on God's level. Then, 
There are five sentences on page 133 that destroys him. And what that is is, God says on page 133. Where is he? Because oh, I've got to go over these it's passages. Four lines. Just go. If you I'm would. telling you, it's four lines. Here's what he said. <laughs> Hear my decree, which unrevoked shall stand. This day I have begot whom I declare my only son. And on this holy hill him have anointed, whom ye now behold at my right hand. When God said that, that destroyed Lucifer. And then he was no longer Lucifer. His name was changed to Satan. So then he knew all he could do was create hell on earth. That's it. There you are. <laughs> Class is over. We'll see you next week. Party time. Party time. Actually, the 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 crux of the whole book rest in, and we're going to get to those in a minute, yeah. so we'll go over them. Thanks for doing that, Marcy. Yeah. Um, the crux of what Satan does goes to, we're going to look at that closely, but I, I want to summarize four and five. Um, it's going to, I'm going to take a little bit longer than Marcy. <laughs> um, okay. Um, but before we do, I just to pick up what Marcy did, remember we've talked about Satan and what defines him as the embodiment of evil. The most important things to keep in mind about Satan is um, that what's basic to his immortal soul is self-love. We saw that, remember, yes. when um, um, he took off on his journey and he runs into sin and death. So what defines Satan is self-love. He loves himself more than God. Um, and the other quality that defines him is um, um, self-deception. He, he is the brightest of lights. He was created the brightest of the angels. So he had a greater power for knowing. And in turning from God, he lost it. So he has this extraordinary power to use knowledge and reason. And he thinks he's being reasonable when he does it. But what we learn when we look at him is he doesn't understand anything at all. So self-love and um, a self, he's, he's trapped in a mind that doesn't see. He thinks he does when he doesn't. So he deceives himself and he deceives others. That's what defines him. And the other thing is um, that in his revolt, when he turned from God, who's the creation of all good things, to oppose him, um, he took on as his end the destruction of everything. So those are the things that define this creature. Self-love, um, a flawed sense of knowledge that he really is blind even though he uses reason to justify everything he does. Some of the qualities that follow from that we've seen. He's a victim. He presents himself as a victim. He's where he is out of a sense of injured merit. Remember that phrase, injured merit. God treated him unfairly. He blames him all the time, um, constantly blaming God for what's going on. He wanted to be the son he didn't get to be the He son. wanted to be, he wanted to be equal. Level. Yes. You know, or better than God. Yeah. We'll see that in a minute. Yeah. So, if we're looking at Satan as an image of evil, those are the defining qualities. And remember when I said last time, I think it's really important if we're going to do this well, if he's the center of sin and we're dealing with sin in ourselves, then every one of us has got to find the courage somehow 
to look at those things and not turn away, particularly when they're painful. Either that or we're not learning to see ourselves. When we get to Dante, you're going to see, Dante wants to get to heaven. That's how the book starts. You can hit him again if you'd like. <laughs> um, the, the Commedia begins with Dante wanting to get to heaven. He sets off in the mountain to get up there to the sun. And the bees keep eating him back, and Virgil comes to him and says, you can't do that. You have to go another You have to have the courage to go down and look at hell. Those of you who have done this know, looking at hell is looking at the, the most grotesque things that we can possibly face. If we don't have the courage to do that, how, how in the hell are we, we going to have the courage to look at the sins in ourselves and hope that they get changed? So um, Satan is in some sense giving us an image of some of the things, whether we want to look at it or not, that are in ourselves. Okay? So even though this is a metaphysical creature as he presents him, he's also an image of the things that we're hoping we can get cleansed of. Um, okay, let's... I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while, but um, these two books are so important to me that I'm going to go through and summarize them very briefly, and then what I'm going to do is go through very slowly and look at what I think are some crucial passages um, hopefully to get to some of the more important images. But I want to I wanna underscore this point before we begin. What happens when we leave book three and begin book four and five is a radical shift takes place. Because up until this time, Milton's created a world um, in which Satan is the central figure. He's the figure of the action. He carries the action. The fall has taken place. He wants to answer it. We have this council. God watches on. Uh, we see what God is going to do in response to what Satan does. And then here in four, a shift takes place. Because after journeying through chaos and facing all of these challenges, he arrives on Earth. And this is our first experience of Eden. So we've shifted from a metaphysical view that's private to Milton, with Satan, and we're entering Genesis. We are now on the ground of sacred scripture. So it's really important to keep that in mind because whatever we say about his treatment of Satan, right now we're going to a text that we take as the authority of God, having the authority of God. This is a prophetic work. It was given by God to man. Milton is turning to it and to help explain the fall he's going to present Adam and Eve. I hope I said that starkly enough because, because we're dealing with scripture and you know how serious Milton takes it. He's, you know, given what we've seen, he takes scripture absolutely seriously. He thinks it's the infallible authority of God. So we're on a different terrain right now. Okay? Okay, very, very quick summary, and then I want to go through the books, and this may get a little bit tedious, but because I'm just going to go through passages, because I, I want to I I read this aloud <coughs> to focus some of the things. I'm partly doing this because I know Milton's hard, and I'm not sure everybody's reading it closely. I know it's not an easy text. I know Carl's moving along better, and it's getting easier, but 
No, I got I didn't say I understood it all. I read it all. But you said <laughs> it was easier than one of My heart leapt when I asked you earlier, you said, I really enjoyed five. I did. Yeah. <clears throat> Good for you. Yes, I read each word. Okay. <laughs> so this shift. Book four opens with Milton expressing um, a grief. He, he makes an allusion to Revelation and says, Oh, oh, I'm going to read it shortly. Oh, if humans would have only heard the warning that John gave in Revelation, we, we may have been able to escape all this, the suffering that's fallen from it. Satan approaches e Eden. He sees the sun. Um, I'm going to come to that passage because I think it's really important. And he expresses his hatred for it. But he also, what takes place in that scene is one of these moments where we get a, a sense that hate, Satan is divided. That he, he looks back on what he's done and seems to feel some regret for it. Uriel um, watches all of this because remember the, the meeting between Uriel and Satan has already taken place. He goes off to get to report to Gabriel what he's seen. Satan arrives at Eden. It's a beautifully described scene. It, it's very, it belongs to the pastoral tradition, what Milton would have known well, the pastoral world, the Greek world of shepherds, and this, um, this unfallen natural world that the shepherds are a part of. It's, it's, a, it's a great um, genre in the, or a subgenre in the literary world. He calls it this sylvan scene, this new earth. Um, um, with all this virgin, these virgin forests and these animals who, are, who, who don't seem to have the fallen character that they have for us today. He sees Adam and Eve and they, um, they overwhelm him in their nobility and beauty. Um, and he hates the scene and it reminds him of how much he's in hell. The sunset, Uriel arrives and tells Gabriel what he's seen. Adam and Eve retire for the evening, and it's, it's a beautifully presented scene. They are courteous, absolutely gracious with each other. Um, they say evening prayers to God, aware that they're going to be the parents of all mankind. It's a touching scene. And Satan, or I mean, Milton describes the two of them going to bed and making love. Um, and I, I want you to remember this. When they enter the bedchamber, the nuptial, the nuptial chamber, Satan, or Adam takes Eve by the hand in absolute courtesy and takes her in. Keep that in mind because after the fall, one of the first things they're going to do is make love. The lovemaking then could not be more different. Absolutely different. <clears throat> Gabriel sends out scouts to watch over Eden. Um, Satan um, takes on the form of a toad so he can whisper in Eve's ear when she's asleep and he does and I'll look at that too. And that's the, um, Eve actually has um, um, a foreshadowing dream of the temptation that will actually take place. Um, Satan's brought before Gabriel, the two quarrel, and it looks as though they're going to fight, and Satan looks up and sees God weighing the scales. The scales are weighed in favor of Gabriel, so he takes off. For those of you who who've done the Iliad and those of you who haven't, there's an important scene in the Iliad where God weighs the scales between the Trojans and the Greeks and who's going to win. So in almost all of these scenes, almost every one of them, Milton's got another scene from Homer or Virgil in mind. 
He's always reworking. I can't tell you how that important. I'm going to come to that because that is that's so important. I'll, I'll come back to it. It's just it's it's a crucial crucial thing to see. Um, the plot of book five, Adam and Eve awake. Eve is troubled. She awakes and tells him of this dream, and in this dream, this angel came to her and tempted her, offered her this power, and she took it and describes herself as being elevated into the heavens and looking down as if she's above everything, that she has this majestic view. And remember, the, 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 the one prohibition in the garden is that they not eat of that the tree of the, good, the knowledge of good and evil. And the, the tempter presents her with fruit from that tree. It shakes her. Adam's response is to console her and quiet her, reassure her it's okay. Um, when God watches on, he realizes um, what's happening, and he sends Raphael to warn Adam and Eve. Um, Raphael arrives, and he's greeted. Eve um, sets out a dinner, and the three of them meet. And it's in that scene that Raphael describes the nature of angels, the nature of being itself, these are all metaphysical, philosophic views. They're not, I don't think they're easy to read, but they're, they're highly metaphysical in the way they're presented. Although it's, you know, he presents it in terms that are understandable. He's just dealing with metaphysical concepts. And then he tells Adam that if Adam is obedient, and he, Eve, the two of them are obedient, they will one day become like angels. I want to look at that passage because it's so important. And Adam says, what do you mean, if I'm obedient? What are you talking about? And it's at that point that Raphael describes the war in heaven, what started it, which is that moment when God looks at his son and says, um, um, behold, my son, it's the passage. Um, That's it. And Marcy just read, I want to come back to it in a minute. Because it's on the basis of what happens there that Satan turns from God, he gathers his angels together, and there will be a war. Milton will describe the war in the next couple of books. Um, part of what happens in, um, in that scene in which Satan has turned from God and begins to plan to revolt, to go to war with him, one of his angels, an angel called Abdiel, resists and tells Satan that what he's doing is wrong, and leave Satan's armies. Now that's crucial um, for this reason. Um, I mean, I, who knows how this played out? We don't know, this is Milton's imagining of it. But it's really, I think, important if we know anything about Milton because we, will, we know how important it was for the individual to stand up against established powers. So the scene's not a small one. You have one angel in the midst of Satan's forces who has the courage to stand up and say no. Okay? Now, those are, that's just a, a very brief summary. Um, um, books four and five. What I'd like to do now is, I'm gonna go through passages and read them to try to focus because I think it'll, it'll help clarify what's going on if we do that. So this, be patient, because we're going to do a good bit of reading. If anybody wants to take a minute, take a minute now and get some coffee or wine. You may need it, I don't know. But if you want to do it, do it now. There's some good food over there. All of you help yourselves. Huh?
wine. Gita's leading the way. She's le follow her. <laughs> Now, could you get a piece of cake? The somebody, the one that you were cutting up, is that a cake? Not now, but to have. You guys, go ahead and take your time. Don't, I don't, don't any, please don't anybody rush. Please don't rush. Just, just listen while you're doing it. Take your time. If everybody could turn to four. Things are going to get really, really tricky, I think, from this point on, because we're in Genesis. I lost my wife. <laughs> Suzanne's bringing back some coffee for anybody. young ones. God, I believe this is for us, for our good, somewhere, honestly. It's like a sharing in the passion. Speaking for myself, I'd like to do nothing more than run away from it. <laughs> I think I'm speaking for other people, I'm not sure, but I believe, I believe there's a grace for us. Just hold on. I'm seeing some heads nod. <laughs> Some smiles. God, my response is see the door. Oh, God. Let's start. Is everybody got Milton? This is important. This signals the change. This is an interesting note, too. So, book four, Milton. Um, remember, Satan is, is on his way to Eden now. God is watching all of this. So this is the prelude to the temptation of the fall. This is setting it up. So all of this bears directly 
God, this is amazing. This bears directly on what's going to happen to bring all the wounding and the sorrow and pain, the disorders into our world. Okay? Oh, for that warning voice, which he who saw the apocalypse heard cry in heaven aloud. Then when the dragon put the second route, came furious down to be revenged on men, woe to the inhabitants on earth. That now, while time was, that is not in the metaphysical world, but in actual time. While time was, our first parents had been warned the coming of their secret foe and scraped happily, so escaped his mortal snare. Oh, for that warning voice. If, if it had only been, if the, if the parents had only heard it, if they could have only heard that voice, how much sorrow could have been avoided, yeah? And you all have the reference to that in your footnotes. It's from Revelation. It's from Revelation 12. Do you all have that? In the, okay. Um, for now Satan, now first inflamed with rage, came down the tempter, ere the accuser of mankind, to wreck on innocent, frail man his loss of that first battle and his flight, fight, flight to hell. Yet not rejoicing in his speed, though bold, far off he's coming. Go down a few lines. Horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts, and from the bottom stir the hell within him, for within him hell he brings, and round about him, nor from hell one step no more than from himself can fly by change of place. Now hold on to that, because I think I've already said this, I have real trouble with what, what, what Milton is doing with angels. That Uriel could not have recognized him to me as unbelievable. And I'll get that from another, I'll, I'll pull some passages together. But here we have it again. There's no way Satan cannot carry hell in him. It's visible. He, can take, he can't take one step and not escape it. He carries hell within him. If this is a fallen angel, how is that not visible? What is Milton doing here? Okay. Um, now conscience wakes, despair that slumbered wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be, worse of worse deeds, worse sufferings must ensue. Every bad thing he continues to do that's worse than the previous one will only make the hell he creates for himself worse. Go down. Um, he looks at the sun, the beauty of it. To thee I call, but with no friendly voice, and add thy name, O son, to tell thee how I hate thy beams, that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell, how glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against the matchless king. Ah, wherefore, he deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was, in that bright eminence, and with his good abraded none, nor was his service hard. He said, what could have been less easy to do than to show him gratitude? Um, thought one step higher would set me highest. That's what I wanted. And in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude. So burthensome, still pain, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received, and understood not that a grateful mind by owing owes not but still pays at once indebted and discharged. What burden then? Um, how can you not feel gratitude at being given what you didn't have? Um, it doesn't take any effort. It's the state that's been created in you by, by receiving this life. 
Now, once again, it, um, can we imagine a, a, a devil, a, a demon doing this? But he's given to this. About line 73, me miserable, which way shall I fly? Infinite wrath and infinite despair? despair. Which way do I go? What do I do? Which way I fly is hell, myself am hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me, opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. Oh, then at last relent. Every step he takes is like a heaven in comparison with the next step, which is going to get worse. There's nothing but endless misery that will get infinitely worse with each thing that he does. Um, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven, and then, oh, then at last relent. Is there no place left for repentance, none for pardon left, none left but by submission, and that word disdain forbids me, and my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts, than to submit, boasting I could subdue the omnipotent, I me. They little know how dearly I abide that boast so vain, under what torments inwardly I groan. None of his angels see the discrepancy between the heroic front that he puts off and what's really going on inside of him. Um, while they adore me on the throne of hell with diadem and scepter high advanced the lower still I fall only supreme in misery such joy ambition finds but say I could repent and could obtain by act of grace my former state how soon would high recall high thoughts how soon and say what feigned submission swore even if he were given the chance, he'd go back and he knows that he would still be left with envy, wanting to have more. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? Um, go down. So should I purchase clear, short intermission, brought, bought with double smart? This knows my punisher. Therefore, as far from granting he as I from begging, God is no, no more going to give it to him than he wants to ask. All hope excluded thus, Behold, instead of us outcast, exiled, his new delight, mankind created, and for him this world. Now hold on to that, because we're going to get a motive in God for why he created. Just remember that at this point, all we know is that God has created it somehow in relation to the fall. Okay, Satan's aware of that. Um... Behold, instead of us outcasts exiled, his new delight mankind created, and for him this world so farewell hope, and with hope farewell fear. Farewell remorse, all good to me is lost, evil be thou my good, by thee at least divided empire with heavenly king I hold by thee, and more than half perhaps will reign, as man ere long, and this new world shall know. This is the point at which he, this is interesting, because those of you who've read the epics know so often, during, particularly in Virgil, the epic hero reaches a point where he clearly understands what his calling is, and he gives himself to it. This is that point. This is the point where this epic hero fixes his goal. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Um, He, he sets off to earth and lands on the tree of life and he looks around and he beholds Adam and Eve. Um, line around 290. 
as he looks around at this pastoral world, he's taken by the beauty of it. Um, we're presented this Sylvian, innocent, unfallen world in all of its beauty, um, the animals, the trees. And then he comes and sees Adam and Eve. Move about line 285.90. From this Assyrian garden where the fiend saw undelighted all delight, all kind of living creatures new to sight and strange, to a far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty, seem lords of all. There's something about the demeanor of Adam and Eve that sets them above and apart of the rest of creation. Um, in naked majesty seen lords of all, and worthy seen, for in their looks divine, the image of their glorious maker shone. Truth, wisdom, sanctitude, severe and pure, severe but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men, though both not equal as their sex not equal seen, for contemplation he and valor formed, for softness she and sweet attractive grace, he for God only, she for God in him. His fair large font and eye sublime declared absolute rule, and um, hyacinthine locks round from his parted forelocks manly hung. Just a couple of things, I, wanna, I don't want to hold on to this one because I want to come back. Is, is this a place for severity? I don't, want, I don't want to take up, I just want to put these questions out. Um, sanctitude, severe and pure. Um, his description of the two is that man was made for contemplation, an intellectual activity, and valor formed. Valor for what? There, we're not in a fallen world. Why, why is that an attribute of Adam? Um, for softness she and sweet attractive grace, he forgot only, she forgot in him. So those are the first defining qualities we get of man and woman. Um, line 420. Eve comments on the restriction that they live under, that they've got this prohibition. And Adam's response is, don't give that mind, it's little enough, because look at what we've got. We shouldn't be complaining about one prohibition here. And notice that comes from Eve, not him. Um, and then line 440, um, this is really crucial. Um, we get from Eve a description of her beginnings, okay? Um, she loves Adam, she expresses her love for him, his bounty following our delightful task to prune these groaning plants and tend these flowers, which were at toilsome yet with thee were sweet. There's almost no labor involved in what they do. They do it easily and they're glad. Moreover, it's, it's a source of joy for them because they do it with each other. And then she says this, to whom thus Eve replied, O thou for whom and from whom I was formed, flesh of thy flesh, and without whom am to no end, my guide and head, what thou hast said is just and right, for we to him indeed all praises owe, and daily thanks. I chiefly who enjoy so far the happier lot, enjoying these. Her joy is greater than his, because she has as the object of her joy, Adam, it's a wonderfully 
gracious thing to say to him. So far the happier lot, enjoying thee, preeminent by so much odds, while thou, like concert to thyself, canst nowhere find. That day I oft remember when from sleep I first awaked and found myself reposed under a shade. Um, she goes off looking, and then she comes upon this pond, about line 460. I started back, it started back, but pleased, I soon returned, pleased, it returned as soon with answering looks of sympathy and love. There I had fixed my eyes till now. She would not have had the strength to turn away from it. She was so enamored of this image. And pine with vain desire had not a voice thus warned me. What thou seest, what there thou seest, fair creature, is thyself. With thee it came and goes, but follow me, and I will bring thee where no shadow stays. She follows him. She's reluctant at first because... Next to the, her own beauty, she sees Adam as falling short. Um, but then says about line 485, To have thee by my side, henceforth an individual solace dear, part of my soul I seek thee, and thee claim my other half, with that thy gentle hand seize mine, I yielded, and from that time see how beauty is excelled by manly grace and wisdom, which alone is truly fair. It's as if they complement each other. That's certainly the way she sees herself in relation to Adam. Uh, now we're going to shift to Satan in a second, but I want to stop. I don't want to spend too much time because I want to get through and and take whatever time we have at the end to pick these up. Does what happens with Eve in the pool remind you of anything? We have faces. Huh? Till we have faces. What? But, until we have faces. I know. What scene? What do you, what remind you? What's well, uh, I'm having trouble remembering exactly, but. Yeah. There's a scene at the end when they're looking at the pool and see Psyche. Mm -hmm. uh, this is very, 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 very different. When they look in, if Psyche's an image of Christ, the, I mean, the anima naturalite Christiana, the natural image of Christ in the soul, what they finally discover is that she becomes Psyche. She's like Christ after all those ordeals. And so is Psyche. Um, anybody? Well, the Narcissus Narcissus? Right. But have we seen, yes. I'm, in case anybody's not aware, Joan, you want to just describe it briefly? Um, well, just in a nutshell, uh, the youth Narcissus looks at his, looks at his, in the in a pool and can't break away from it. That, that's all I remember. Yeah, no, that's good. But is has, is there anything like that that has already occurred in this epic? Same. Yeah. Go ahead. Being in love with himself. Yeah. And she was basically suffering the same issue until someone came along and helped her. Yep. By the way, Dante is going to do something with this in the middle of the purgatory with a siren episode. But so they're all acknowledging the tendency of self-love. Um, any comments about that? This is before the fall. Any brief reflections? It's I'm odd. That, it's odd that vanity would come into play before the fall. But vanity doesn't, ha beauty, the love of beauty doesn't have to be vain. So it's but, it's, but it's vain to not be able to look away. 
Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to say. You know, beauty is fine and appreciated and wonderful, but if you can't look away. But you're kind of wrapped, wrapped. The narcissic <laughs> myth, Addis, is there, that, that is the danger for her, her at this moment is that her love of that thing, even if she doesn't know there's, even if she's not conscious, it's narcissistic. You could, for the psych, modern psychologists would say unconscious, you know, that we do. Whatever it is, it has this power over her, great enough to fix her. If, it were, if Adam didn't come along, so however we see this, it's problematic because there's a real danger of her, and this is before the fall. So, I mean, I'm really, you know, Adam for valor, Eve for these things, um, and then we have this narcissistic myth here in, in the way that Eve first experiences this image that she's so taken by it she can't, take, she can't take her eyes off of it. This is an unfallen world. What is, what is Milton saying about unfallen man? Huh? Or something. It seems to only fall with yeah, I, right. I, I, I don't see anything right. and haven't read anything in here where Adam was at fault for anything. It's always the weakness was always. That was yes. The, that was the time. <laughs> <laughs> but what's changed, Fred? <laughs> we, all know, we all know that women did this anyway. I'm going to You're threading real close there, Rob. <laughs> you got more courage. <laughs> I'd ask for protection from my wife, but I'm not going to get it. <laughs> Oh, no, absolutely not. No, ab okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait. There are more places that it happens. I mean, she's born, you know, she's born in the shade, he's born in the sun. Right, good. You know, she's, she, he sees God, she sees God in him. Right. I mean, to me, you know, we're starting to see the cracks in the armor. And, but if, if, if any of us would go back to Odyssey... Everything, I, I've gone back and looked and researched and everything. And yeah, it well... Basically, it basically says that in Milton's time, that was a reflection of uh, the way it was viewed. Let me just offer this thought and then go on, because this can be a can of worms and I don't want to take it on here. For any of you who've read Shakespeare, look at Portia, Helena, um, um, oh, Isabella, I mean, take a look at every one of his comedies and his treatment of women, women who are the, the, the statesmen, the teachers, who bring political orders, disorders in a, in a polity, um, out of their disorders into an order. It's the women who do it, yeah, not but, the men. But, but in whose works is, do you see it? Wait, Shakespeare's, hold on, wait, hold yeah, on. I just, that's the difference. Yeah. Those are social you're, talk, you're talking about people who are individual writers who are above and beyond the masses. But, and I include both Shakespeare and, and Milton. Hold on, just both of these men are giving us an image of women and men. This is going back to paradigm, principle types. He, this said, he's saying this, take a look at Shakespeare, and more of a take a look at Dante. Because one of the, or at least let me, write, I'm going to raise this question, then I'm going to go on, because this is going to be a, a dangerous topic, because it's going to get the difference between men and women. Shakespeare's view of women is extraordinary. Shakespeare's view of women is extraordinary. Those of you who did we did some of the plays together. Look at Dante. Beatrice. Beatrice idolized. Well, and he I, I mean he worshiped well, revered yeah. her. Yeah. Revered her. That's good. Yeah. Once again, she's a teacher type greater than he, without Beatrice he could not complete that last stage. 
And the, the prototype for most of these, and, and I'm talking about, one of the interesting things for me is Shakespeare's, I believe, people argue about this, but in my mind, it's, take it for what it's worth, it's my reading. Shakespeare's Catholic. Dante's Catholic. Milton's Protestant. Now, I want to leave that out there now without taking it up, but, but seriously, hold on, because the view of men and women here is radically different from what's been presented and handed down through the tradition, particularly when Mary enters it in a Catholic world. Okay? Now remember, that Catholic world right now has been being dismantled. Okay? Because one of the criticisms, I, mean, I don't know how much that was prevalent then, is that these Catholics make too much of her. Um, but, but right now what I want to do is just put this question out. This, these are defining qualities as Milton sees them how do we understand that? Okay, just hold it as we go forward. Um, they say their prayers, and the exchange between Gabriel and, and Satan take place, and Gabriel threatens Satan to take him off. God weighs the scales, and Satan goes back. Um, and it's interesting that he could be left to do his harm again, particularly because we know that he's going to cause the fall. Book five, very, very quickly. Book five begins with Eve awakening from her dream. I want to just look at this quickly. In her dream, she pictures this angel coming to her about line 60 or so and saying, oh fair plant, with fruits surcharged Danes, none to ease thy load and taste thy sweet, nor God nor man is knowledge so despised. Why would God forbid you to have something so obviously delectable, attractive? Or envy, or what reserve forbids thee to taste? Who's doing something wrong with you that would keep you from this? Um, because he's keeping you from being who you could be? He envies you, or something, or... For Buddha will, none shall from me withhold longer they offered good. Why else set here? This said, he paused not, but with his venturous arm he plucked, he tasted, he damp, whore chilled at such bold words, vouched with a deed so bold, but he thus overjoyed, O fruit divine, sweet of thyself, but much more sweet than cropped. Forbidden here, it seems, as only fit for gods, yet able to make gods men. You can become greater than you are if you taste this. You'll be like a god. Here, happy creature, fair angelic Eve, partake thou also happy though thou art. Happier thou mayest be. Whatever happy you, happiness you know will be less than what will happen when you take this. Um, ascend to heaven by merit things and see what life the gods live there. Be like a god. She takes it. Go down a few lines. Forthwith up to the clouds with him I flew. And underneath beheld the earth outstretched immense, a prospect wide and various, wondering at my flight and change to this high exaltation. Suddenly my guide was gone, and I methought sunk down, sunk down, returned to this impoverished condition of earth. And she wakes up, and she tells Adam, now look at this. Best image of myself and dear, half the trouble of thy thoughts this night in sleep affects me equally. Just to hear it upsets me. Nor can I like this uncouth dream of evil sprung I fear, yet evil whence? How will he know anything of evil? We, we are before the fall. 
Um, go down about 115. Some such res he's, he's what Milton is doing in this passage, by the way, is um, Fred Sexton, what you're describing. What he's doing is giving an explanation according to the psychology of that time, the way they understood dreams to take the form that they did. Um, but with addition strange, yet be not sad, evil into the mind of God or man may come and go so unapproved and leave no spot or blame behind, which gives me hope that what in sleep thou didst abhor to dream, waking thou never will consent to do. She's already having dreams, according to the psychology, dreams very often gave away something um, foreboding, something bad. Um, Adam tries to console her and cheers her, and um, but we've had that dream explained in those terms. Anybody want to make a brief comment? Just brief. They have a meal together, and it's during this it's during this interlude here that Anna or Raphael describes um, the nature of angels, and it's interesting because in this episode, Milton gives his his philosophy, what's called monism. It's actually a contemporary term. It's I mean it's been a standard term forever with the philosophers. Monism generally speaking, means that there's only one thing that explains, moan, one, one thing that explains the universe. To a monist, it's matter. And Milton is, is offering that as an explanation of the world. That, that matter is, was the source of all things. It just takes on more and more rarefied qualities the closer it approaches God. But all things consist of matter. That's, at, that's it's platonic in some ways, not completely. It's absolutely contrary to what Aristotle says. Because Aristotle says things only come into being when matter and form join. Um, it, I don't want to get into that, but we're getting Milton's presentation of his philosophy of the universe. Um, over on um, line 490, or roughly, He's describing the nature of the soul and says, Fancy and understanding whence the soul reason receives and reason is her being. Discursive or intuitive discourse is off, office yours, the latter most ours. That is, we use, the, the nature of our reason, according to Raphael, is um, discursive. The, the, the Latin word for it is ratio, one thing at a time. This is actually, this is Aristotle, it's ratio. One thing at a time. D discursive, it means step by step. Intuitive means all at once. We grasp something, we behold it. Um, the angels have an intuitive power of reason. Humans have a discursive um, kind. He goes on to say, is often the latter most is ours, differing but in degree of kind the same. Wonder not then what God for you saw good if I refuse not, but convert as you to proper substance. Time may come when men with angels may participate and find no inconvenient diet nor too light fare. He's going to enjoy the food with them, even though he's an angel. Um, and from these corporeal nutrients, perhaps your bodies may at last turn all to spirit. 
Now hold on to this. One of, I mean, one of the questions here is, is there a Gnostic side to Milton's way of looking at the world? One of the more influential um, traditions at, at the university where he studied, it, it, it had been in existence for a century, um, was there during Shakespeare's time, was a, a Jewish kind of Gnosticism, a Platonic Jewish kind of Gnosticism that, that believed, was, it, it was partly Manichaean, it believed that spirit was better than matter. Um, you, it was present in Calvin, except Calvin took it to extremes. Um, and he says, your bodies may at last turn all to spirit, improve by tract of time, and wing it ascend ethereal as we or may at choice here in heavenly paradises dwell. If ye be found obedient and retain, if you, if you remain obedient. Now, hold on, everybody, just for a second. He's saying, um, if you're good, you will reach a condition of losing your body and becoming spirit like pure spirit, like other angels, if you're obedient. Remember for Dante, well, you'll see when we get to Dante, Dante is going to say we die, lose our bodies, but at the resurrection our bodies will be returned to us because we're not really complete human beings until we're with our bodies. And we know from the Bible in the transfiguration scene that, that the bodies take on a transformed state, however we're to think of it. But our perfection will never be complete until um, the end times when our bodies will be returned to us, okay? Adam says, what do you mean if I'm obedient? And it's at this point that he gives the descriptions of the revolt. I'm going to go on over to the passage that Marcy read about line 605. God summons all of his angels to celebrate in this moment. Now, Follow this really closely because it's really, it's, it's, it's full of problems and difficulties. Here, all ye angels, progeny of light, thrones, dominations, princedom, virtues, powers, hear my decree, which unrevoked I shall stand. This day I have begot whom I declare my only son, and on this holy hill him have anointed, whom ye now behold at my right hand, your head I him appoint and by myself have sworn to him shall bow all knees in heaven and shall confess him Lord under his great vice-regent, reign, abide, united as one individual soul. I want everybody to just mark here, if you don't, or put it on a piece of paper if you don't want to mark it in your text. Mark book three, line 375, 390, because in that, in that book, book three, Milton's giving us a description of what's going to happen at the end of days um, when, when Christ is victorious over everything. There will be a period of tribulation, and when that tribulation is over, all evils, all quarrels will be settled, and he describes God at that moment as giving up his throne as if all were going to be equal together, that humans would have become divine, and there would be no more need for degrees or inequalities. Just keep that in mind. I want to look back at it later, but I'm just holding. It's book three, line it's around 375, 390. <coughs> now, when Satan hears this, he is outraged. Milton describes the, the angels all going to their different areas, their different camps, and night coming and all of them going to sleep. 
And remember, he thinks that angels have, they have a corporeal quality to their nature. So they eat, they sleep, they do things that humans do. Who's Steve? Hmm? Sorry? Who's Milton. Milton. Um, and Satan comes and begins to talk to his legions. Um, his first companion, about line 670. And his next subordinate wakening thus to him in secret spake, Sleepest thou, companion dear, where sleep can close thy eyelids? How can you sleep at a time like this? Um, and remember what degree, what decree of yesterday so late hath passed the lips of heaven, heaven's almighty. And oh, hold on for a second. I, I should have said that. We keep getting a, a narrative as if time takes place in sequence. But we know that um, there's no time in eternity. Things are fixed. So one of the problems, Raphael actually deals with when he says, I'm, I'm going to use language that humans use to describe divine things. Just You have to make that allowance. So remember that when we're hearing this, somehow we have to keep in mind that fact. That even though he keeps describing things in terms of time, we're in a timeless, eternal condition. And language has to work with those limits. Um, Rememberest what decree of yesterday so late hath passed thy lips of heavens, almighty? Thou to me thy thoughts was one, and I mine to thee was wont to impart. Both waking we were one. How then can now thy sleep descend? How can you sleep when what's, when what's just taken place? New laws thou seest impose new laws from him who reigns. Um, going over about line 705 or so. Um, his countenance is the morning star that guides the starry flock, allured them, and with lies drew after him the third part of heaven host. He's um, offering his legions these lies, and they're following him, and, and this is that moment when a third of heaven falls, because a third goes with him. Meanwhile, the eternal eye, whose sight discerns abstruses thoughts from forth his holy mouth, and from within the golden lamps that burn nightly before him, saw without their light rebellion rising, saw in whom, how spread among the sons of morn, what multitudes were banded to oppose his high decree, and smiling to his only son. Um, he's watching Satan do this, and we know, and he knows, and so does the son, that it's because the son was given this elevated position. Yes, he's mad at the son, really, not at God. Satan. Satan, yeah. Well, he's mad at, I think, both of them. But he, it's won, the, he wanted to be. It, when the son came about, then he knew he could never be equal to God because this son would always be there. Yeah, wait, wait, hold on, Morris, if you can. Wait one second. The son responds and says, this is about line 735, to whom the son would comment, aspect and clear, lightning divine, ineffable, serene, made answer, Listen to these words because this is the son. This is the one who's going to become Christ. And right now what Milton is doing is giving us the kind of exchange that took place in the Homeric world. You've got two figures talking to each other about a battle they're about to face. Okay. 
Mighty Father, thou thy foes justly hast in derision and secure laughed at their vain designs and tumults vain. Matter to me of glory, whom their hate illustrates, when they see all regal power given me to quell their pride, and in event know whether I be dexterous to subdue thy rebels, or be found the worst in heaven. Now that's the sun. Mm -hmm. Satan is going to find out whether I'm somebody to toy with or not. Whether I'm going to defeat him or be the worst for failing to take him on. Um, he describes Satan's t um, mansion, the palace of great Lucifer, so-called, that structure in the dialect of men um, interpreted, which not long after he affecting all equality with God in imitation of that mount whereon Messiah was declared inside of heaven. So he's erected a, a palace that he thinks equals God because remember the reason for this revolt is he wanted equality. He really, he really thinks he's as great as God. Yeah. Um, hold on because this is Thrones dominate, this is line 780, 775, thrones, dominions, princedoms, virtues. If these magnific titles yet remain not merely titular, since by degree another now hath to himself engrossed all power, and us eclipsed under the name of king anointed, for whom all this haste of midnight march and harried meeting here, this only to consult how we may best with what may be devised of honors new receive him coming to receive from us Neat tribute, yet unpaid, prostration vile, too much to one, but double hound enduring, to one and to his image now proclaimed. But what if better counsels might erect? I'm going to show you how wise I am. You will not, if I trust, to know you right, or if you know yourselves, natives and sons of heaven, possessed before by none, and if not equal to it, yet free. Equally free, for orders and decrees jar not with liberty, but well consist who can in reason then of right assume monarchy over such as live by right his equals, if in power and splendor less in freedom equal. I don't know if that was, let me try to see if I can make that clear. <laughs> what he's saying is, God said, um, this day I have begotten you, honor my son. So what God did was make, safe, make the son um, better than the angels. But, and Satan's argument is because he's one of us and so equal to him, he has no right to arbitrarily assume that place. And it's on the basis of that that he's going to make his revolt. Okay? Because he says nobody, nobody can do that. Chester, can you, sorry, we're almost done. Can you get, thank please. Abdul says, how stupid you are to say this, you should bend your knee to the um, one who created you. Um, uh, this is about line 830 where he makes his argument. But to grant thee thus unjust and equal over equals monarch reign, you should accept it. Satan's answer, and this to me is profound because this is so absolutely modern, this is the position Satan takes to defend his revolt. This is in response to Abjah. This is about line 850. So spoke the fervent angel, but his zeal, none seconded, 
as out of season judged or singular and rash wherein rejoiced the apostate. Abdul leaves. He, he, he walks away from Satan's legions. The apostate in Morhadi thus replied that we were formed then, sayest thou, and the work of secondary hands by task <coughs> transferred from father to his son. Strange point and new. On what basis do you claim that? Doctrine which we would know so whence learned, who saw when the creation was? Remember thou the make, were you there when you created? How do you know? Strange point and new, doctrine which we would know whence learnt, who saw when this creation was? Rememberest thou the making while the maker gave thee being? We know no time when we were not as now, know none before us, self-begot, self-raised by our own quickening power. When fatal course has circled his full orb, the birth mature of our native heaven, ethereal sons, our puissance, our strength, is our own, our own right hand. We were there to see, wait, by the way, I'm going to call this, this is, I'm going to call this what I believe, what's happening right now, following the Renaissance, what I'm going to call the advent of the sign. Those of you who, Lewis and we've been talking about this for some time when we finished last year with Lewis. Remember how the disciples keep saying to Christ, show us a sign. The Jews keep saying, he just performs these miracles, just performed it to, the, um, you know, to these large crowds and when they come away from it, the, the disciples say, show us a sign. And he says, the only sign I will give will the sign of Jonah. What they're asking is of Christ, even though he's just done an extraordinary thing, is to make it clear to their reason, to bring it within the grasp of their reason they, they want God to accommodate their judgments. They want a sign, something that they can hold on to. In one sense, you can say it's a refusal of mystery, that we want to bring mysterious things within our control. I'm going to make the claim here that what in the 17th century, with, the, with these movements that are gone, that we're bringing the, mis the mysterious the sacred under the control of reason to reducing it here and we can see it here Satan's argument is absolutely modern were you there to see yourself I mean you can see how rational is that it, it's reduced to reason you weren't there so how do you know we are self-begot that's an absolutely modern position we weren't there to see God doing it therefore he didn't do it we are self-made the rent so there were so many theories coming out of the Renaissance that we, we fashion ourselves we create ourselves so this is Satan's answer to Abdiel and the, the source of encouragement for his legions to, to begin now to carry on this revolt. The next couple of books are going to show that battle taking place. I want to stop here quick because we've only got a few minutes, but I want to... Um, book four, Milton's taking us to Eden. In book five, he's, he's going to the crux of the problem and saying that the, the cause of Satan's revolt was God conferring this honor on his son. Yes. Now remember um, that the way that he presents it is that the angels were present to see this happen as if they were created before this happened. Abdiel's going to say um, Christ was, or the son was the means of creation. So there's a problem here because it seems as if the son was also the means, but that he also took on their nature 
and he was arbitrarily elevated in their presence. Some people have gone so far to say this is a quality of Arianism in Milton. That he's actually making the son inferior, the father is showing that he's not of his substance. That he's doing this in the presence of the... So, there's a number of serious problems here. Book four, we're going to Eden with Adam and Eve. Book five, we're actually going to the very heart of the problem, what Milton sees as the cause of Satan's revolt. So let me throw that out. Any, any questions, any comments um, about what he's doing? Any concerns or... Glad to hear anybody at this point. Fred. Yes. Come on, I know, I, I'm trusting you. What's your response to all of this? Well, I, I, I don't know if we're here yet or not, but I guess the thing that, that, that strikes me is that this can only be a power in the world. Say that again. Well, in, Sorry, in, say in exactly this, those words. In this, this can only be a problem in the Protestant world. Why? Because here are the God, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three different why is that a Protestant problem? Well, I mean, we, we, if, 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 if in the Catholic world we have a trinity where God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all unity, right? Would say oh, be right, able to right. single out the right. Son, right. right? To be jealous of. That's a rhetorical question, by the way, because I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that I feel like needs to be addressed. Yeah, I do too. To I, fully understand what's going on. I do too. I do too. What are your thoughts about book four and what and Adam and Eve? Any th and, and with Raphael? Well, here, well, no, let me go back to that opening. Book book four opens. Oh, if only, if only humans had heard the warning that John hears in that John gives us in Revelation. There's there's nothing taking place in Scripture that shows an angel coming down to warn Adam and Eve. Here, it begins, turn to that page just for a second, if you can. That's an extraordinary opening. Oh, for that warning voice that now, while time was, our first parents had been, if only they'd been warned. If only they'd been warned, it could have been, this is Milton. This is Milton. If only they could have been warned, what happens next? They're warned. Did it make any difference? What does that do for Scripture? I'm asking this really seriously. What does that do for our understanding of Scripture? It's almost like he's blaming God. Meaning? You know, speaking, my, my thought for Milton is that you, you wouldn't say, you know, go for that warning voice. You'd say, why did you have to do this? Right? Why, did, why didn't you warn them? Why did this have to be? It, it's almost a blaming of God for the fall. So it's not accepting it as I don't know how to do it as a pops into my head, but but it's it's blaming him uh, for all that is bad in the world. And I don't know if that ties back into your question uh, in the Protestant world or how we look at evil in the Catholic or whatever you know it's, it's the why does this happen question. One of, my, one of my answers to that is, and I think it's implied, because 
A, num a number of times we've seen God the Father watching Satan. We saw it in book two and book three. He's aware of what's going on. In book three, we see the son responding and saying, I will take care of it. So one of the things I think we come away from in that book is God's allowing it to happen. Why, why does God allow evil in the world? Free will, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on that. I'm, it's free will, and I think also something more. But here is it God, is that he's indirectly blaming God. Anybody else? What else? Anybody have any other thoughts? The opening is Milton. Oh, if only human beings had been warned, they could have avoided all this. Raphael gets the warning. They get it. It doesn't help. What does that do for our understanding of the fall, Milton's understanding of man and the fall? Inevitable. But doesn't, doesn't this whole book go against scripture? I mean, Paul says, in all things give thanks. It doesn't say, in all things ask why. So we should give thanks for the fall just like everything else. We are not to ask, we are not to question God. That's, well, and here's can. Milton trying to take us to a point where we understand why God did it. We shouldn't even be questioning him. I, I agree with that. But here, here, my question is this. My question is this. What does that do? What, is, what, is, what Milton does with this do for our understanding of Adam and Eve and the fall? Because in, in his presentation, they've been warned. Right. What does that do for our understanding, our picture of Adam and Eve? Doesn't it make it worse? Yeah. 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 I, truly, I mean, the issue for me here is not inevitable. I mean, God's what we know. He's allowing it. But to put it this way implies they weren't even strong enough to do it. When they, and there's nothing like that in Scripture. Right. This, in my mind, makes the, the, the parents worse, like there's a greater depravity, and we keep getting hints of something there. So he's not saying that explicitly, but it's hard for me to look at this and say, this is a much worse picture of Adam and Eve than we get in the Bible because they've been warned. And, and Raphael even says, if you're obedient, you'll rise. Just be obedient. So he knows. They both know. And still, so in this picture, it seems to me, my, my reading of it, is that we have a much more severe God because he's warned them and it didn't work, and we've got a much worse picture of Adam and Eve. But isn't that paradoxical in its own right? I mean, God already knew what the answer was going to be, so why did he send Raphael in the first place? See, that's, I mean, I think that's indirectly, what, for me, that makes it a more severe God, like he had to, and a creature, and a creature that's worth. <laughs> Chester, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I think is I don't know how swings this to be. Can you speak up? Sorry. <coughs> I don't know how literally we need to take his scriptural-ism. This is this is me who hasn't studied him. This is me who didn't take your classes when you actually taught at school. But just from my two cents on this. If we're coming from a time of the Reformation, we know he was unhappy with the way things were going. He wasn't happy with the church, he wasn't happy with the other church, but generally speaking, he's not happy with the church. And he wasn't happy with the Catholic church. Was that a little pride? He wasn't happy, you're right. Right. 
So I, I kind of have an idea why did he make Satan human or why could he cry and all this stuff. I think it just all goes back to him thinking uh, he's talking about what he has observed in his life with the abuses or misuses of whatever power mm -hmm. there were. Yeah. And he kind of attributes these thoughts and feelings that he felt in real life and then he kind of goes back and maybe creates a story. To what? And he, 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 he adds those attributes to these biblical yes. characters yes. to <clears throat> to what? Uh, express his feelings about the, what his feelings are about religion and the yeah. organization of religion and how it, the cultural or our understanding of the Bible. That, just sort of that, you know, these people who are supposed to get it right don't have it right. So if he says God did, if he kind of makes God look not so great, that's because he's not happy with these people God has as a representative of himself. And if he thinks that the devil is human, he's or has human-like qualities, yeah, right. So I think a lot of that goes into how he decides to throw in a couple of these lines here and there for his own yeah. Mike, my question is, are there implications of this to Valerie, did you have something you wanted to add? First of all, I think this is a literary work. I look at it as a literary work first. And then it has this, another layer of meaning that comes I'm not looking at it as being precise. I'm looking at it as being interesting. Okay, you would not agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's what I'm getting. Yeah, I'm not going to be opening up my Bible and saying, well, that's not right, and that's not right, because it just doesn't go. I mean, two, two things to keep in mind here. To, can we, two things to keep in mind. One is, um, Milton's working in a literary tradition and treating it as a work of literature. Right. So in his mind, it belongs with Homer and Virgil. And I, I don't think he would have been happy to be placed with Dante, but certainly the, the pagan epic, he would have um, seen his work as falling in that tradition. But the other thing to keep in mind and not forget is he was absolutely serious about this stuff. His, his belief in God and we already know that his belief in God and Christ were absolutely serious. He, he took all of this serious. So. The question that I'm asking is because all, all the epic writer, by the way, I'm glad, I mean, to put the question up, all the epic writers presented the epic as if, as if it was a source of wisdom that was special. That was true for Homer and Virgil. If you go back to that tr tradition, you see that the epic, this is so true, and a change has taken place because the Copernican Revolution has just taken place. Before that, poetry was looked at as the highest source of wisdom for a people. The poet was always at the center of a community, giving the best of his wisdom. It lined up with the prophets of the Old Testament. They sat in the, in the, in the presence of a community and expressed the, some truth about a struggle in a community. Okay? The, epic, the epic hero was called, I mean the epic poet was called Avates, a seer. He was a prophet. He was speaking truths that, would, that were necessary for a community's whole existence. So these were never, ever just toss off this story. This is serious business to Homer, to Virgil, Dante, um, 
Milton. They are, they are writing within a literary tradition, but they're speaking as prophets, avates, seers, to help us see something we've lost sight of. Remember, that's the nature of the epic in this whole tradition. And it's really clear that Milton spent a whole life contemplating this, very serious about it. And it wasn't, it wasn't an, um, a cavalier thing to choose the fall because that was the source of all of the problems. Do you think that's his, this is him trying to work through it? And Sorry, trying to what? He's trying to work through it himself. He's, he has these feelings, he has these ideas, he has these beliefs that he's not sure about. This. No, he I, have, I, he's not, and he's, you're asking a lot of questions, maybe he was asking the same questions, or he expected people to ask those same questions questions because he's yeah he had a definite this is what yeah. it is and that's what he wrote yeah but hold on he's writing it to work it out no there's no milton's not working if you read milton's writings he's definitive and decisive and everything the divorce tracks the killing of a king if you look area pachita he's a man taking a stand and he's taking it as i tried to show in you know, all the background he's taking it in the belief that there's something wrong with the religion in the world and the stance that he's taking is the truthful one. When he sits down to write this epic, he knows exactly what he's doing. And, I, and partly to answer it, good, I don't think he's going, um, I'm going to do this to show what a Protestant should believe. He's writing it from out of the beliefs that he's holding. For example, at the, at the end of book two, when he, goes to the, when he shows Satan going through chaos and he goes by the limbo of vanities, if you remember, I should have read it, I, I don't think I did. When he describes the limbo of vanity, he says, that's where all the friars, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, he's, what he's saying is the Catholic work, churches, is going to hell. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't write a treatise and say, Catholic, but every, every one of his treaties makes clear what he thinks about Catholics. Milton is decisive, definitive in his mind. He's writing an epic, he knows exactly what he's doing. The questions that I'm asking are, is there something for us to learn from what he's doing about the, the way a Protestant stands in the world? But is it political or is it why It's deep, it's, every, it's, it's, it's absolutely political, but, but more than anything, it's religious. I mean, it goes to fundamental truths about God and man. Well, but you had Catholics first and then you had the separation, so there had to be something political in that. Say again, Phil. Say because there was one faith, and then there was division. Right. And that division, I believe, comes from political, not from actual biblical Bible It's all of it, but hold on. I, I mean, I thought, I mean, that certainly was my aim in the two weeks that I took of background, that there were political motives behind what happened, but they weren't the governing shaping motives. The motives were basically theological. The, the, the greater division, I mean, the, the political contributed, and, and I thought I expressed that, maybe not clearly enough, but what was at issue were basic, basic theological divisions. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a separation. They disagreed on the nature of the church, on the authority of the pope, on the nature of the Eucharist. Those were, those were the fundamental dividing points in these groups. That's what separated them off. Um, what distinguishes the Presbyterian from the Anglican, say, in, those, in the Civil Wars, wasn't just political. They were, I mean, I tried to make that clear. When Henry took, went to war with the Scots, the Presbyterians, 
he wanted to impose an Anglican view on them. When they captured him, they wanted to impose a Presbyterian. Now you can say there's a political character because they are, they're using politics. But what motivates them is their religious beliefs because they believe the other parties are doctrinally, theologically, in error. We have to stop. Yep. There are serious questions here. We've got to pick up. We're going to do the next three books. Next time? Six, seven, eight. Oh next week. Right. Oh Thank you. It's been interesting. Right. We need to do that like I did it back in, when I was in college.